The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our military who are tuning in over the Internet, and also new listeners in the Boston and Chicago areas. Thank you for being with us today and for your many emails. In just a moment, author and popular television and radio host Tom Hartman will be here to talk about his controversial State of the Union address. According to Hartman, the pursuit of happiness guaranteed in the Declaration of Independence is a myth if it's not backed up by the right to work. And he also wants the minimum wage increase so that those who are willing to work for a living can earn enough to survive. Whether you agree with Hartman or not, we have to agree that the economic data points to a growing economic divide, a divide which is eradicating the middle class and which, from a historical perspective, leads to economic and political instability. But before Mr. Hartman joins us, as is my custom each week, let me tell you a little about his background. Thomas Carl Hartman was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and grew up in Detroit and Lansing, He graduated from Michigan State University with a degree in electrical engineering, which led to Hartman opening an electronics repair shop near the college in 1968. It was also at this time Hartman had his first encounter with radio. He became a disc jockey at music station WITL. There's no argument that Hartman exhibited all the traits of an entrepreneur from the very start of his career. He co-founded the Woodley Herber Company, which sold herbal products and teas, the New England Salem Children's Village, a home for children with special needs, the International Wholesale Travel, and Spayberry Travel Companies, and he also co-founded a successful advertising agency. But that was just his warm-up act. In 2003, he began his radio program in Vermont, and it was quickly picked up by the American Radio Network and Sirius Satellite Radio. And by 2011, Talkers Magazine was heralding Hartman as the most popular liberal talk show host in America with 3 million listeners and growing. Today, Hartman also produces a daily television program called The Big Picture, which is licensed over the RT News Network and available on Free Speech TV, Dish Network, and DirecTV. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that Mr. Hartman is a prolific writer with more than 20 books to his name. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report popular humanitarian, radio and television host and author, Tom Hartman. Welcome to the program, Mr. Hartman. Well, thank you, Rebecca, and thank you for that very kind introduction. One note, I didn't graduate from college. I, <laughs> I, uh, I attended, I studied, but I didn't graduate. Well, you know what? They, they all say, all the bios say you graduated, so let's just keep that a secret between you and me and the audience today. <laughs> we don't we don't want that getting out to college students who think it's okay not to graduate. Um, that was a different time too. It was a lot, a lot easier to make your way in the world in 1968 than it is today. Wasn't it? Well, isn't that isn't that true? And I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, that leads us right into today's topic, which is your State of the Union address. So, for openers, I w- I'd like to ask you to explain to listeners today why you feel the Bill of Rights should be expanded to include the right to work. Well, this was something that was first proposed by Thomas Paine. Um, he, he wrote a book called Agrarian Justice, and in addition proposing unemployment insurance and uh, Social Security and national health care and a guaranteed minimum income, um, he also suggested that in those times, now this was, he, he wrote this just a few years after Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations came out in 1776. I think uh, 
uh, Grand Justice was written in the 1780s. And uh, Adam Smith had opened this discussion about, you know, labor and the role of government in a capitalist economy or a semi-capitalist economy. There's no real pure capitalist economy and never has been. But And and uh, what Payne was saying was that capitalism fails from time to time. In fact, it fails with some regularity. And when it does, it's the job of government to step in and, and, and keep people from falling too far, too deep, too hard. And Franklin Roosevelt revived this in 19, I think it was 1940 or 41 with his second Bill of Rights, in which he suggested that we should actually amend the Constitution to say that a right to health care, the right to food, the right to housing, and the right to a job were not privileges in the richest country in the world. They were rights, and that, uh, therefore, there should be some protections around those things. It never, you know, he died, uh, I think, about a year later, and it never, never went anywhere, or never went beyond him. It never lived beyond him. But I think it's a, you know, these are, these are things that are enshrined in the United Nations uh, Declaration of Human Rights as rights. They're, you know, we've signed a treaty agreeing that they're rights. These are things that are considered rights. They're in, they're in the Constitution of Germany. They're in the constitutions or laws of most European countries. But somehow we haven't gotten the message. Well, let me ask you this, because I think this is what, you know, I'm going to, you know that I'm going to get a million emails about this subject, because you can't sure. bring up the right to work without uh, stirring a, a pot of controversy. So what kind of jobs should the government provide? Uh, you'll recall not long ago, the government wanted to create a bunch of green jobs, and they invested half a billion dollars in Solyndra, and that didn't turn out very well. So uh, I, and I, frankly, from my perspective, the government's not likely to have better odds than any venture capitalist would have. So I, I, I'm not disappointed when those investments don't go well because uh, 80% of them aren't going to go well. Uh, but the 20% do so well that they, uh, they really uh, overcome any of the losses. That's what venture capitalists rely on. But we seem to jump on the failures of government and make a big deal out of the investments that they make in jobs that don't pan out as opposed to the ones they do. So let me ask you this. Where, where would these jobs come from? How would we create them? Well, first of all, with regard to the, the uh, stimulus investments in green energy, those actually produced net positive revenue for our government. Solyndra was one company. It was one of, I think, what, 97 different green companies that, that the government invested in. That's right. And the, the majority of them have returned very good returns. I mean, the, the, the program net-net is, is very positive. But those are not the kind of jobs that I think that the government should be providing. And frankly, I'm skeptical about the government even investing in such companies. Um, I think that uh, if you the, the kind of job that the government should provide when and it should only be when capitalism fails, you know, when 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 the markets are not working correctly mm-hmm. and there is a, 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 a clear, identifiable, measurable surplus of labor. In other words, people looking for jobs who can't find jobs at that point then the government can be providing the kind of jobs that nobody wants to stay in for the rest of their lives. This is what FDR did back in the 1930s. He created the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. He created, well, actually, the first one was the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps. We had a terrible problem in the United States at that time with the Dust Bowl. And the Dust Bowl was the result of having first, you know, first and second generation tillage of, uh, of, of the Midwest, of busting up these, you know, large, uh, uh, acreage grasslands and exposing the dirt uh, and, and it get, getting blown away. And so the solution to this was to plant a lot of trees. I mean, millions of trees. And they did that in the 30s and it ended the Dust Bowl. And But, you know, planting trees is not a great job. It's not something that you want to do for your whole life. But on the other hand, if there are no jobs and you've got to travel to some other state and plant trees, which is hard work, but you get paid a, a decent enough wage that you can keep your home, that you're, you can keep your family intact, you can provide you know, health care to your family and education and things like that, then that seems like an altogether reasonable thing. And there's all kinds of stuff that needs to be done in this country that, we, you know, the, that 
in the absence and, and, and that arguably aren't even really appropriately the realm of capitalism that have to do with public spaces. Sure. And, you know, in just a moment, we're going to have to take a hard break here and we're going to come to that because I know that uh, one of your concerns is America's aging infrastructure. And you also bring that out in your State of the Union address. But I just want to make the point that that when you're talking about the right to work, you're talking about a safety net. And I want to reiterate that it's when there's a surplus of labor, when unemployment is out of control, that you would like to see this program kick in. So now we're going to go ahead and take that break. Uh, And when we come back, we'll find out what Mr. Hartman has to say about our aging infrastructure and how that ties into the right to work. You're listening to the Costa Report. Do you love creating salads as much as you enjoy eating them? Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Dole inspires fresh and wholesome dishes for any meal with their wide selection of salad blends and all-natural salad kits. From the mild and tender texture of sweet butter lettuce to the crunch of classic romaine sprinkled with colorful shredded carrots and red cabbage, Dole has over 30 salad blends to satisfy every palate. If you're looking for the ultimate in convenience, try Dole's unique salad kit combinations that include farm-fresh lettuces and vegetables, mouth-watering all-natural toppings, and specially made dressings. It's all you need to make a distinctively delicious salad. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.dolesalads.com for recipes and other ideas to feed your culinary imagination. Have you checked out the Costa Report blog yet? Well, what are you waiting for? There's no quicker way to find out what newsmakers are saying than the Costa Report blog at RebeccaCosta.com. It's where the former CEO of Apple and PepsiCo, John Scully, predicts where the next tech breakthroughs are going to come from. And also where Trent Lott explains why a GOP reversal of the Senate nuclear option will signal real change in our nation's capital. And the Costa Report blog is where you'll discover why Alan Dershowitz is worried that ISIS is adopting Hamas-like tactics. You'll find all this and more at the Costa Report blog. A new blog is posted every week, and they're short, pithy, and tell the unvarnished truth. Just go to RebeccaCosta.com to get the latest blog. That's RebeccaCosta.com. And while you're there, be sure to register for updates and breaking news. The Costa Report blog bringing you the news the big networks don't and won't. I don't care what they say. If you own a business, you did build that. You faced the tough challenges and you made the smart calls. So if your business is growing and you need more space, make the smart call today. General Steel. Our buildings have been used around the world, saving our customers as much as half the cost and time of conventional construction. As much as half. If your need is for storage and manufacturing, sure, we're the best. But with our custom exteriors and designs, General Steel buildings are used as offices, churches, retail stores, and more. Imagine a 5,000 square foot building for less than 35 thousand dollars or even ten thousand square feet for an unbelievable price under seventy five thousand these are prices you just can't ignore on a building designed specifically for you make the smart call and call general steel today at 898 steel save as much as half the cost of conventional construction and own the space you need call 898 steel that's 800-987-8335 This is Alan Lundell, a.k.a. Dr. Future on KSEO Radio. Ten years ago, we bought a house out in Boulder Creek. It was a gamble because we loved to be around bandwidth and power. We found the perfect house with incredible view, but no bandwidth or power. I was very despondent. I was reading Wired, and I ran across this uh, Silicon Valley executive who lived in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and he claimed he had bandwidth. He was getting service from some group called Etheric Networks. So I gave him a call. Etheric put a dish on our roof, and boom, we suddenly had amazing bandwidth. It's been 10 years now. We've been very, very happy with their service. KSCO, residential special. Residential service up to 10 megabits per second, symmetric. That's up and down for $85 a month and $199 installation. With guaranteed minimum speeds and uptime, unlike our competitors. Etheric Networks. Call 650-399-4200. That's 650-399-4200. Etheric.net. That's E-T-H-E-R-I-C dot net. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is radio and television host and author Tom Hartman. Now, in your State of the Union address, you make the point that there are 600,000 bridges which are considered structurally deficient in the U.S., and that, that sounds like the perfect opportunity to open up large public works projects to put Americans who want to work back into service, uh, similar to the WPA and the CCC that we were talking about earlier. I, I take it you'd be in favor of that. In a, in a highly qualified way, um, or, or uh, uh, whatever the word is, for <laughs> with, with, with considerations. Um, building bridges is something that requires a pretty high level of sophistication. There is some menial and manual labor involved, but there's also a lot of very sophisticated labor necessary. I'm, I'm frankly more in favor of companies that do that, private corporations, for-profit corporations that do that, um, engaging in a competitive bidding process with the government and, and getting those kind of jobs. I think that there are there are probably a lot of things that are not that complex that people could do. Or frankly, uh, you know, if the government is not going to be the employer of last resort, the government could kick up employment in, in a fairly similar way, simply by hiring a lot of these companies. And then they're going to go on, you know, employee hiring binges because suddenly they've got billions of dollars worth of contracts to repair our bridges actually but what about three, subsidizing $3. these companies to provide training so that people who don't have skills uh, can be subsidized to learn those specialized skills such as working on bridges i don't think you'd even have to provide a subsidy you know unions traditionally have done that sort of thing first of all and you know at no cost to the employer uh, but secondly you know when companies are growing and they have government contracts and an opportunity to to you know add 500 people to their workforce and build a bridge, you know, um, they're going to find those people and they're going to train them. I mean, there's just history demonstrates that I'm, uh, if, if there's no other employment opportunity, then, you know, there's, there's a lot of things. There was a program called CETA that uh, Jimmy Carter rolled out. It might've been actually even Richard Nixon. I know during the Carter administration was happening because I was running a community for abused kids in New Hampshire and we had a CETA employee. And it was um, something in service to America, as I recall. Uh, the TA is to America. And what it was was the federal government, if you were a legitimate nonprofit, you know, one not one of these political front groups, but, you know, a, a, we were, I was running a community for abused kids, you know, a real nonprofit that's doing work in the community, then you could hire – and it was based on the number of employees you had, as I recall. And so we only qualified for one person, but we could hire one person full time and the federal government for one year would pay their salary. And so, and it, and this was all unskilled labor. We hired a guy who came in as a janitor and groundskeeper and he worked with us for a year. He did a spectacular job while he was there. He, he started working with some of the local folks, the local plumber, the local electrician. We were in the process of building a house at the time. And he learned all these skills, and he he left with you know a really good job. And as a consequence of the on-the-job training that he got, that was a really great program. Mm-hmm. And uh, it it got it got the axe, as I recall, in '81. And those kind of things. I mean, there's a lot of really innovative ways to to use government funds, which is all our tax dollars. We want them used well and wisely. To use them in a way that that also benefits society that doesn't just gratuitously provide jobs. Yes, yes. Now, you also make it clear in your State of the Union address that creating a job for every person who wants work isn't enough if they can't make a livable wage, uh, and you are in favor of raising the minimum wage. Uh, My question is, uh, how did you arrive at the $10.10 per uh, hour figure? I think that's what you recommended in your speech. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, I think that's what the Obama administration was recommending. The reason for that number, first of all, there's a couple of other numbers that are good out there. You know, $12.50 is what the minimum wage would be right now if it had been indexed to inflation since 1968. Yes. So we've seen an actual collapse in the purchasing power of the minimum wage. If you, you know, people say, well, the minimum wage, those are entry-level jobs. Uh, you know, I put myself through college on the minimum wage. Well, I put myself through college on the minimum wage. I worked at, a, at an Exxon gas station. 
I worked at Bob's Big Boy as a, as a cook and as a dishwasher and for one day as a waiter. Um, you know, like, like, those were minimum wage jobs. And back then with the minimum wage, you could pay tuition at Michigan State University. And, and so, you know, A, if we just took the minimum wage up to 1240, where, where it's been, where it was at 68, that would help a lot. But the, the 1010 number is a really significant number. And that's because there are a number of industries in the United States that have developed a business model that really require, that really is based on gaming the system and having you and me, the taxpayers of the United States, subsidize them. And what they know is that if workers are working full-time and their income is still below the poverty level, then those workers qualify for food stamps. They qualify for aid to families and dependent children. They, 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 in many cases, qualify for housing support, in some cases for transportation support, and they qualify for free health insurance through Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So they keep their wages low enough that their employees all qualify for these benefits and this is where, you know, the Center for Economic and Policy Research found that the average Walmart in the United States, every Walmart store, is costing us, and tip, including the local community, about a million dollars a year. Mm -hmm. Because that's how much we're subsidizing their employees with all these programs. You could, we could radically dial back on the use of food stamps in the United States. We could radically dial back on the use of uh, all the Medicaid, all these other things, if every employer in the country paid their employees enough that they no longer qualified for those benefits. And the magic number where you're paying people enough that they're no longer in poverty and they no longer qualify for food stamps is $10.10 an hour. I see. Now, so it blows up what, what do you say to people who say that the minimum wage issue will take care of itself if the economy is booming and there's a shortage of labor? That's true. That's true. When, when, you know, and, and these are the cycles, you know, these, these are the cycles that you see in a capitalist society um, where you have tight labor markets and then you have very loose labor markets. The big problem that we have in the United States is that we had, uh, at least right now, is that through most of the history of our country, we had fairly tight labor markets. We made things, we consumed the things that we made. The original I, I lived in Atlanta back in the 80s when the first Walmart opened up down there and the big banner out front was made in the USA. That was Sam Walton's slogan when he was still alive. Yes. But what happened was, you know, from the George Washington administration, Alexander Hamilton pitched this in 1793 to Congress in his 11-point plan for manufacturers. Um, Washington raised tariffs on imported goods, import taxes, up to about 30%. And we maintained that 30% tariff level literally from the George Washington administration until the Reagan administration. The Reagan administration started cutting it slightly, the Bush administration a little more, and then Clinton came along with NAFTA and, the, and GATT, the WTO, and slashed it horribly. And now it's around 2%. Now, other countries have also slashed their tariffs, but they've replaced their tariffs with something called a VAT tax, where you know, manufactured goods are, are taxed at each stage in manufacture. And in, in Germany, for example, if a car is made in Germany, there's a 17% VAT tax built into that car. Right, right. So I'll, I'll tell you about it when we get Yeah, yeah. Really we're going cool. to have to take another break. Uh, the VAT tax is a value-added tax, and I think uh, pe most people who travel are familiar with the fact that they can get that VAT tax. Uh, refunded at the airports, and that's the same tax that we're talking about. But uh, we'll get into that when we come back from our break. Stay right where you are. We'll be right back with more from Tom Hartman. You're listening to the Costa Report. If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same way.
As a business owner, hiring the right person can make the difference between success and failure. Hi, my name is William Templeton and I'm the owner of Templeton Quest Investigations. When hiring a new employee for your small business, making the right choice is crucial. Templeton Quest is a local firm offering pre-employment background screening. Have confidence in knowing you've made the right decision. Templeton Quest will provide you with the facts you need to hire right the first time. See how affordable pre-screening is. Contact us for more information at 831-454-8853 or visit us at templetonquest.com. Templeton Quest is a full-service private investigation firm licensed by the state of California. We also offer a range of other general investigative services. California License 27096. Contact us at 831-454-8853 or templetonquest.com. Hello, I'm Tandy Beale, and I want to invite you to join us for the first monthly Saturday Family Concert Series at Santa Cruz Veterans Memorial Building. Great for kids, grandparents, and all in between. On Saturday, February 7th at 11 a.m., Grammy-nominated Linda Tillery and the Cultural Heritage Choir graces the stage with songs from the African diaspora, Haiti, Brazil, Georgia's Sea Islands, and the Deep South. Come join us. For more information, go to tandybeale.com. Coast Paper and Supply has been family-owned and operated since 1948. They have a wide array of products available, including brand-name and eco-friendly cleaning supplies, paper goods, and compostable plates, cups, and cutlery. Whether your needs are for business or home, Coast Paper and Supply's friendly and reliable staff have what you're looking for. They even accommodate special orders. You can find them at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz, Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4.30, or call at 831-423-3350. Coast Paper and Supply is a proud member of Think Local First. We must have unity. We must open our hearts to each other. If I can open my heart and you can open your heart and we can learn to love, that's the miracle. That's the miracle. Love storm through your heart. Love storm through your mind. Love storm touching everyone you know. Starts with you and your little circle and your family. Starts at the counters and the stores. Starts when you're disappointed, when things don't seem to work out. Forgive somebody. Love somebody. Touch somebody. Give to somebody. Do it through the day. That's the love storm. We need a love storm. And it can come out of Santa Cruz. Remember America. Sundays, 10 till noon. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is Tom Hartman. And before the break, we were just starting to talk about the value-added tax, so let's pick it up there. Oh, Rebecca. Well, I just just uh, real quickly, uh, I'm sorry, forgive the long-winded reply. Um, first of all, the way a VAT tax works is that um, every stage of manufacture, there's a small tax. So when a steel is made into a door, there's a small tax. But it's, it's basically invisible. People don't even realize they're typically paying it uh, until they see it on the receipt. But the way the countries use it is Germany will say to the United States, for example, okay, we're going to export BMWs from Germany. Once they leave Germany, because Americans aren't Germans, you get a fat tax refund. So you get a 17% reduction in the price of the car. Yes. On the other hand, if you want to take an American car and sell it in Germany, there's going to be a 17% tax at the border. So you have the net effect of about a 35% tariff, You know, the, the, the equivalent of a 35% uh, tax on imported goods. And that's why Germany protects – that's how they protect their manufacturing. That's why they still make things in Germany. We're the, you know, Taiwan does this, South Korea does this, China does this, Japan does this, all the European countries do this. We're the only ones who are like complete idiots. We're standing out here with absolutely no protection for our trade policies. Uh, I know. And, and like I, I said, this, I know. this started with Bill Clinton, you know, it's, 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 and, it's, and now Obama wants to put it on steroids with TPP. It's just, it's crazy. So yeah, anyhow, I, 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 I agree with you. That VAT tax issue uh, needs to be addressed. The model is being used by every industrialized country. I don't know why we've been uh, late to the table. But, but let me ask you something. I, 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 
I, yeah, I have to. I, I I have to confess to you. I am very ambivalent about raising the minimum wage, and and I want to explain to you why. Because I I think, it, and this is kind of difficult to explain because it's a long trail. But I I live here in the central coast of California, and every year due to immigration laws, when the crops all become ready at the same time, there's this mad scramble for the same small labor pool of pickers. And as a result, agricultural companies have had to raise wages and benefits. And and and, and this is where the trouble begins, because these increases are then passed on in terms of the cost of food at the grocery store. And increases in prices of food hurt the poorest among us those who are unemployed and who are struggling. So in the long run, the pickers may be better off, but overall as a society, the poor suffer for that. And that's why I cannot decide whether I'm in favor of raising the minimum wage or not, because I'm worried that that gets passed on to the consumer and has really detrimental effects downstream. Well, it doesn't just get passed along to the consumer. It also gets passed along to the stockholders and to the executives. Um, when when the when the minimum wage was twelve dollars and fifty cents in today's dollars, um, you know companies were slightly less profitable. CEOs only made thirty times what their workers make, and people had you know enough money to live on. But you know darn well if we go to ten dollars and ten cents per agricultural worker, uh, you know what that's going to do to the the price well, of food. First of, all, first of all, ag workers are exempted from minimum wage laws. And I'm 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 quite sure the ag workers and domestic help and I mean there's a whole bunch of categories of waiters and waitresses who are exempt from minimum wage laws in most states. Secondly, um, labor is only a small piece of the cost of any product, including food. And and third, and this is perhaps the most important thing, when the the real job creators in our economy are people who spend 100 percent of their income. Because what drives an economy is not supply, it's demand. If, if people want something, then some entrepreneur is going to come along and say, I'll, I'll develop that and get it, get it to them. But they've got to have enough money in their pocket to buy it. So when people at the bottom of the economic ladder make a little more money, they spend 100% of that money. That stimulates the local economy. Stimulating the local economy, you know, they, they go to a restaurant, things like that money works its way out into other people's pockets. I could not and, agree with you more. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm 100% in agreement. But, but even let's look at the carbon tax, which you also mentioned in your State of the Union address. Uh, these taxes can cause gas prices to increase. And then who gets hurt the most? Uh, the people who are driving old cars that suck up a lot of gas and are spending a disproportionate amount of their income on gas and auto maintenance of old cars. I mean, when we look when we look downstream, further downstream, each of these measures tend to hurt the poorest in our in, 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 poorest well, strata. First of all, just to, to close up the, the unemployment thing. Um, but the, the one thing I would add is that the minimum wage was, or the minimum wage employment was that the minimum wage was put into place in 1935. It's been raised over 30 times since then. If the minimum, if raising the minimum wage had ever, ever increased unemployment or increased substantially the cost of goods and services in the United States, that year would be on the t- tip of the tongue of everybody at Fox News. You know, as soon as you say minimum wage, they yell, oh, 1972, remember what happened in 1972? It was such a disaster. Well, it has never happened. The minimum wage has been raised over 30 times, and every single time, it simply stimulates the economy. It makes things better. So, you know. But, the, but so stimulate, okay, I understand that, but you also exactly. understand my point. My I point do, is do. that you these carbon taxes, raising the minimum wage, that when these costs get passed on, they they raise food prices, they raise gas prices, and who can least afford to handle those increases? Those are the people well, that get hurt. Well, that, you know, that's typically the talking point that you hear from oil billionaires is, oh, you don't want to increase the cost of oil. You don't want to tax oil or fossil fuels because poor people are going to get hurt. Every proposal I've ever seen that would increase the cost of, of fossil fuels has a has a uh, tax credit associated with it, so that poor people, people you know, at or below the poverty line, or people even you know the last the last one that was proposed back about five.
five years ago. It got out of the House, but it never got out of the Senate. Um, it was if you made less than $60,000 a year, you were getting money back from the government to cover the cost, which was coming from that carbon tax. You would get that money back and, and to, so that your cost of gasoline doesn't go up. And so that cost, now granted, that cost will be borne by things like airlines and delivery companies and whatnot, and it'll echo through the economy and slightly increased prices or slightly decreased profits for these companies or slightly decreased wages for their multimillionaire executives. Right. But it, again, it's, it, it, there are ways to mitigate the harm while you're, while, and, and they're fairly straightforward, we've been doing them for years and years and years, while you're advancing the benefit of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're right about that. If if uh, if it didn't work, uh, then there would be people that were jumping all over that. What what do you say, Tom, to people who 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 say, you know, we just want government to protect property and provide oversight and let the free market? Yeah, it doesn't. The free market isn't perfect, but just let it take care of this stuff. I say there's no such thing as a free market. It's that's like saying I want to play in a free football game. <laughs> No, okay. it's, it, you know, you, in order to play a football game, you have to have a field, you have to have goalposts, you have to have yard markers, you have to have referees, you have to have rules, and everybody has to agree to play by those rules. Markets are set up the same way. Markets, we have a stable currency that's regulated by the Fed and, and by the Treasury Department. You have uh, the ability to borrow and, and to uh, invest, you know, both sides of that equation. Both are protected by, by agencies like the Securities and Exchange Commission, so people can do it with confidence. You've got audit trails and rules of the road. These are all defined by government. They're all defined by law, and they're different from country to country. But the mar- there is no such thing as a free marketplace. It's, it's, a, it's a complete canard. Marketplaces are created by government. And the reason why we create marketplaces, and this goes back to Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations in 1776, the reason why we create marketplaces is not just so some people can get rich. We create marketplaces because it's one of the best ways to advance the public good. So then you have to ask yourself the question, you know, is this particular marketplace, the way it's being run with these, this particular set of rules, advancing the public good or hurting the public good? And I think you could build a strong case that a lot of the dislocations in the American economy right now, the, the monopolies that we see, are hurting the public good, are too big to fail banks, are hurting... Well, I, I think it, we'd be hard-pressed to argue with you that the public good is not being served at this particular moment in time. Now, we have to take our final break. We'll be right back after these important messages from our sponsors. You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars, and I have a question for you, Scott. What goes into making Method Champenois bubble? You know, it's a process that's really defined by the French government that we've taken and enacted into our wines, which really drive the quality of our sparkling project. So this is a process that the French government defines pretty specifically, and you remain faithful to that. Yeah, 100%, and in some places we push it a little bit. Now, how do the bubbles translate on the palate? You know, it really gives you that vehicle, that mousse for the character of the sparkling wine, carrying the fruit and the complexity. It's the expression of the wine. To find out more about Caraccioli Wines, visit us at www.caracciolicellars.com or stop by our tasting room in downtown Carmel, California. That's Caraccioli Cellars, C-A-R-A-C-C-I-O-L-I. Cellars, come taste the difference. If you're wondering what to do with all that data you're creating, do I have an offer for you? Tableau is drag-and-drop software that people of any skill level can use to analyze and turn data into something actionable. That's right. I said actionable. And isn't that what all that data is for? With Tableau, you can connect to any data in virtually any format and visualize it on the fly. Databases, spreadsheets, even big data sources are instantly combined into usable charts, graphs, reports, and dashboards. People can analyze data and -and drag-and-drop at 10 times the speed of a traditional business intelligence system. But the most impressive thing about Tableau is that anyone can use it. And just to prove the point, you can get a free 14-day trial from Tableau just by mentioning you heard this ad. But do it now, because this offer won't last. For your free 14-day trial, visit Tableau at T-A-B-L-E-A-U dot com slash Costa. That's Tableau.com slash Costa. Tableau Software. What's your data trying to tell you? 
The original Stagnero family has been in business since 1879. The Stagnero name stands for quality, quantity, and great service. The family's Gilda's Restaurant on the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf is still the fishing headquarters of the Santa Cruz area. It's where fishermen gather each morning for coffee and breakfast before heading out on the bay. Stop by Gilda's and say hi. Dino looks forward to meeting you at Gilda's on the center of the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf. Have you noticed that food just doesn't taste good anymore? Why is that? If you eat food, you'll want to know this. Our fruits, grains, and vegetables contain less and less nutrition every year. Chances are even your organic plants don't have anywhere near the 70-plus minerals that make a plant healthy and delicious. Listen up, home gardeners, farmers, growers, and lovers of good food. This is Andy Anderson telling you that you can go beyond organic. Perk up your plants and revitalize your fields with blooming minerals from Longevity. This marvelous soil conditioner will re mineralize your soil with up to 76 organically bound earth elements. That means healthier and better looking crops that resist bugs, mold, cold, and other nasties that can wipe you out. Commercial farmers are reporting faster growth, more yield, and higher brick scores. That means better tasting food for you and me. Get Bloomin' Minerals in powder and liquid form from a spray bottle for houseplants to 55-gallon drums for professional growers. Call us now to order toll-free, 888-245-0300. That's 888-245-0300. This is Steph. This is Rob. Join us for Out in Santa Cruz, Saturdays at 7 p.m. as we bring you the hottest LGBT topics and guests of the week. It's fun, it's fabulous, and we don't shy away from controversy. Visit outinsantacruz.com for past shows and more. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Remember, join us on Out in Santa Cruz at 7 p.m. Saturdays on KSCO AM 1080. I'm Steph. I'm Rob. And And you've you've been been queered. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Tom Hartman. Now, I can't let you go without asking you about another issue that you raise in your State of the Union address, and uh, that's the Supreme Court Citizen United ruling, which determined that it was unconstitutional to limit campaign contributions of unions, organizations, and companies, because that was the equivalent of limiting their right to free speech. Is that right? Yeah, although the court, if you read the decision, they they actually never said that there was limiting their right of free speech. They said it was limiting our right to hear their opinion. And therefore, that was a form, we were on the receiving end of free speech, and we should have the right to, to get that. That was the rationale, Citizens United. Right, we should be able to hear their free speech. Correct. Yes. Yes. And uh, you make a point that uh, that ruling has opened the door for too much business influence in governance. Yeah. And not just business influence. There was a study out of uh, Stanford, I think it was it was about uh, two months ago, a fellow by the name of Giles, G-I-L-E-S, was the lead author. And they found that uh, over the last 15 years in the United States, if you look at the legislative priorities of the top five percent of americans those happen with really high regularity if you look at the legislative priorities of the of the from the 10th percentile to the 90th in other words the the middle 80 percent americans the probabilities of they're getting what they want done legislatively were equivalent to random noise in other words our legislators are not listening to anybody except the people who are writing checks to them and that's not a democracy that's an oligarchy that's not what the founders had in mind but but it's funny that if you speak to any politician in office, one of their top complaints is how much of the time that they have that they spend raising funds to run for the next election. I, I think everyone yeah. working in Washington wants to spend more time governing than raising money. They hate doing it. But but if that's the yeah. case, why hasn't anything substantial been done on uh, election reform? Well, I mean, what's your opinion? <laughs> I, th- I think that at the end of the day, this is a bipartisan issue. I, I agree with you, and I know a lot of Republicans who have said to me, uh, both on the air and off, that uh, Citizens United has made life really hard for them because they have to spend even more time begging for money than they had to before. And, and they hate that. They run a government. Yeah, yeah they, they they hate doing it. Uh, you know, on the other hand, there's a small number of uh, fairly powerful politicians in both parties who are 
you know, beholden in a large way to very, very large financial interests, whether it's the Koch brothers and the Republican Party or Wall Street and the Democratic Party. And uh, we need to get their self-interest out of the way. But I, I, I just, you know, the two, the two principles that the Supreme Court put forward, the first was in their Buckley decision in 1976. From the time of George Washington until 1976, everybody in America agreed spending money on anything, including political campaigns, was a behavior and that we can regulate behaviors under the law. The Supreme Court in 76 concluded that, no, it's not a behavior, it's actually speech, and it's protected by the First Amendment. And then in, in 2010, they added to that a, an interpretation of an old 1886 ruling that said that corporations should have 14th Amendment protection, equal protection, you know, the 14th Amendment is the equal protection clause It was passed to free the slaves, but the Supreme Court decided this should free the corporations, which means now that even foreign corporations, and this has already happened, can buy American politicians. It's just a, it's a very, very dysfunctional system. No other developed country in the world has anything close to it. And it's producing a really bad outcomes politically for both sides of the aisle, for everybody from Tea Partiers to, to uh, you know, progressives. Let me pick your brain here. How would you propose we start separating government and these special interests? I would suggest that we amend, the, the only way you can get around a Supreme Court ruling is to amend the Constitution, and it's been done a number of times. I would suggest that we amend the Constitution to say that money is not speech and that corporations are not natural persons. They don't have the rights of human beings. And then once that's done and the Supreme Court isn't there to knock down your rulings, Congress could go back to, starting in 1973, after all the Nixon scandals, they passed a lot of really good campaign reform, mostly transparency laws. And and then, you know, there have been others added. I mean, John McCain is the great champion of this, McCain-Feingold, and which was struck down by Citizens United. And the other one that was struck down by Citizens United was passed in 1907 by Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican Roosevelt. And that was the Tillman Act, which made it a federal felony for corporations to give money to politicians running for federal office and you know we've always we've always regulated this until the last you know five years and and just in those five years since citizens united we've seen you know the cost of an election go from under a billion dollars to now they're talking five billion dollars for the next election i mean who can who can possibly play in that sandbox outside of you know just a few thousand people in the united states they were you know of the of the uh, billion dollars that was spent in the last presidential election, there, there was, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the exact number, I don't, it's, it's in the neighborhood of between three and 400 million of that was provided by fewer than 200 people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's not a democracy. And we also have the problem in the media of, you know, not um, having any more of a fairness act. Uh, they recently ruled well, that organizations are allowed to uh, buy time uh, for candidates, and uh, that doesn't fall under any kind of uh, oversight. Or, and yeah, I'm, and, I'm, 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 and I'm television stations are not required to give candidates equal time, the uh, opposition right. equal time, if it's purchased time by an organization. Yeah, and and that's uh, you know, a, I, that's I remember, sticky. Yeah, I remember in '87 when Reagan ended the Fairness Doctrine, thinking, you know, this is going to be interesting. I, I think that we can do without um, equal time rules. Although, if you know, Maine and Arizona both had public funding at their elections, and it was working really well in those two states. And you had a bunch of people who were just like average workers, or, or in the case of Arizona, there were several women who were housewives, you know, who weren't working outside the home, who ran for public office right. and got elected. And then the Supreme Court struck them down. They said, you know, these are unnecessarily restricted, you know, using, using state money for elections, you know, this should be private money. You know. it, it is this kind of bizarre theory going on at the Supreme Court that I think is disconnected from political reality. I, I agree with you. I think they are disconnected with what the repercussions are of these rulings. And uh, so far, they have not been good. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, But before we say goodbye, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for your State of the Union address and also for your humanitarian service. Thank you, Mr. Hartman. Well, thank you, Rebecca. You asked the best question. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of your show as well. And I'm, I'm glad we had this opportunity to talk. Come back anytime.
Thank you very much. If your station is leaving us after the first hour and you have a question or a comment to make about our interview with Tom Hartman, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. And if you joined our broadcast late today or missed the interview with Tom Hartman you and you want to listen to what our previous guests also had to say, remember you can always download episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and our new YouTube channel. And you'll also find our radio blog posted every Every week on our website, the blog captures the headline news story from every single interview. So if you ever have to miss a program, and I hope you don't, uh, you can read the blog and stay informed. For instance, the blog for our interview last week with Senator Phil Graham is already posted on the website. All you have to do is click on the word blog at the top of the homepage and, and it'll pop right up. And speaking of staying informed, the staff at the Costa Report does a terrific job of updating the website with new articles, interviews, videos, book reviews, and and book suggestions. So visit our website at RebeccaCosta.com and and have a look around. It's it's easy to remember. The website is MyName.com. And while you're there, be sure to register so you receive our email blast that announces who the program guests are for the upcoming month. Uh, Just go to RebeccaCosta.com to register your email address. My my guest next week is Mr. Joseph Califano. You have not heard from him for a while. He says that President Johnson passed hundreds of laws during his term in office, and there is no reason Congress and the White House can't be just as prolific today. Find out what former Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare Joseph Califano knows that we don't. I know I'm looking forward to finding out. He was one of President Johnson's closest confidants, and he says today we're still living under the Johnson administration. That's hard to believe, isn't it? That's Joseph Califano next week on the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. Now stay tuned for a second hour of Straight Talk Radio. You're listening to the Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.